There are some questions in life that seem to fill up all of our thinking. The questions that, the big questions of life that relate to how we think and what we do, how we relate to one another. One of those questions is something that the Bible is continually addressing. And it's this question, can God be trusted? It is, a, it is a theme, an object of discussion throughout virtually all of Scripture. And I think it's an underlying idea in the 91st Psalm that we read a few moments ago. The psalmist is, is speaking about, uh, he's speaking to people who have, who have declared that they are followers of God. He begins the very first verse by talking about the Most High and people who dwell in the Most High and the Almighty and, and say of the Lord, He's my refuge and my fortress, my God whom I trust. This is addressed to people who, who are thinking about God already. This is to Israel. This is not to the Babylonians. This is not to the Philistines. This is to us. And yet, there is this underlying sense that even to the people who have made declarations about God, there is this ongoing great question of life, can God be trusted? The psalmist says, let me talk to you about this God that I'm describing. This God is like the wall of a fortress. And as as the enemy comes and pounds against it, this wall holds firm. And you can be safe in this wall. This, this God is like, it's like a, a great bird. And I picture an eagle in my mind who, who gathers her little ones under her wings as predators come after them. And the psalmist says, this is the God that we worship. This is the God that being declared, should we trust or not? This is a God who has power To protect us. And this is the God who loves us. And who calls us to himself. And gathers us under his wings. This is the God. About whom we ask. Can he be trusted? And the psalmist's declaration. Is what the scriptures have been telling us. Through the centuries. And the church and the people of God. Have been seeing through the centuries. Is that yes. God can be trusted. And I think if we took a poll this morning. I suspect it'd be pretty high, if not unanimous, an answer to that question of, do you think God can be trusted? So, why do we struggle so much to trust Him? Because the reality is, we truly only believe God can be trusted if we really trust Him. And as human beings, we wrestle to trust God. I know that's true because people through the centuries continue to wrestle to trust God because that's what the scriptures are writing to us over and over again. They're encouraging us to trust God. They're trying to help us understand that God is trustworthy and and nudging us, even God's people, into deeper levels of trust of God because a part of our fallen human nature is we wrestle to trust God. And you wonder, why is that? There are probably a multitude of reasons, but I think one of the reasons that the psalmist addresses here is that we live in the reality of a fallen world and all kinds of stuff comes at us and as the stuff of this world 
hits us and, and squashes us and pushes us and turns the screws on us, we turn to God and say, what are you doing? Where are you? Why is this happening? I was down in the prayer room this week and someone has written on the board, God, how can you allow so many cruel and unfair things to happen? We understand that question. But the underlying idea of that is, can God really be trusted? And when the stuff of life is pushing in on us, we're continually asking, can God be trusted? When our finances begin to crumble, can God be trusted? When someone we love gets, gets cancer, we wonder, can God be trusted? When people die far too young, can God be trusted? When stuff that we've counted on and relied on and, and, and banked on isn't there anymore, we question, can God be trusted? When relationships that have been so essential to our lives fall apart, can God be trusted? On and on the list goes. And because we live in a fallen world, there is adversity and there are problems. And the psalmist says it comes to us at night, comes to us in the day. You know, at night, there is this sense of, of heightened fear. You know, you know those, those times when you're, you're at home and, and maybe your family's gone and you're home by yourself for a night? You hear everything, right? I mean, all it takes one other person to be there. You know, one of your children can be there and you don't, it doesn't seem as scary, like they're going to protect you. You know, but, but it's just something about that, that, that nighttime heightens our fears, where we walk, if you go to a large city, there are places you can walk during the day, but you don't want to walk there at night. And our fears are heightened at night as, as the attacks come at us. But it's also, he says, during the day as well. It's noonday. Times when we least expect it. It comes in the back door on us. Times when we feel like, okay, I think everything's all right now. I don't need to worry about it anymore. It, it hits us. And often those noonday things are from the evil one who's continually attacking us and, and driving at us. And we read this passage from Matthew's gospel of Jesus being tempted. And the second temptation, Satan takes Jesus up on the, the top of the temple. And he says, why don't you show people how awesome you are and what God can do for you. That you could jump off this temple and you won't be hurt. Because as Psalm 91 says, he will not your, let your foot be, hit a stone. Hit, the angels will come and they'll save you. And Jesus says, that's not the way it works. But that's part of the temptations that Satan brings at us. When we least expect it, boom, there it is. You ever, you're familiar with the game Whack-A-Mole? Do you know that game? You know, you got, there's a picture of one. You know, you got these little holes and, and when you put your money in, usually you had an arcade or something, you put your money in and, and a mole pops up and you have this mallet and you whack it on the head and you get points. You know, the... And there are different versions of this game. I was doing a little research on it this week. Uh, there's, there's not only Whack-A-Mole. Yeah, it's been you know, quality time. Whack-A-Mole. There, there's Whack-A-Banker. Uh, Whack-A-Lawyer. But the most heinous one is Whack-A-Pastor. I'm just thinking, what is that about? That's nuts. Right? Don't get any idea. I see the wheels turning in your heads about where you think you want to go. Someone said to me after first service, we, we could put pictures of things, pastors on there, and that might be fun. But, you know, this game, it starts out, one pops up and you hit it, and then another one pops up and you hit it, and you're staying on top of it. But you give it about 10, 15 seconds, and they start popping up a lot faster and a lot 
and a lot more of them simultaneously. And then when I, last time I played the game, I'm just whacking all over the place, you know, trying to hit them. And I'm not hitting anything. I'm just trying to hit things as fast as I can. And, you know, sometimes life is like that. It feels like, okay, we got this under control and we're good. And then that pops up. All right, I can handle that because I've got that finished. And we get to this. And next thing, before we get that finished, something else pops up. And now we're trying to juggle two things. And then a third thing comes at us. And a fourth and a fifth. And, and life just has a way of moving in on us. And in those moments, we're saying, God, are you there? Do you see this? Are you listening? Can you really be trusted? And it's not as though Christians are exempt from this stuff either. We'd like to think sometimes that we are. Something in the back of our minds, maybe it's the evil one speaking to us, wants to believe that if you're a follower of God, life gets easy. I've come to the conclusion the reality is probably more the opposite. All you have to do is read the scriptures. And you look at the things that happen to the people who make right choices, who make choices for God. Jeremiah the prophet is the only voice that we hear of in in Israel for God during the exile. And what do they do to him? They throw him in a well and they beat him. And you see that over and over again with the prophets and the people who stand up for God. You look at the history of the church. Even now, there are many countries of the world where life is far easier for people who are not followers of Christ than for people who are followers of Christ. But something in us wants to think we're exempt from that stuff. And, and when you read the writer, there is a little hint that maybe that's true. Beginning at verse 7, he says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You'll observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near you. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And you'll tread on the lion and the cobra and you'll trample the great lion and the serpent. And you read that and you think, we ought to be free from this stuff. But you've got to remember, the psalmist is not writing a theology of suffering or of pain. He's simply saying, look, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world in which the evil one has a lot of power. And things are going to come against us. Adversity, opposition, all kinds of stuff is going to come at us. And we have a choice. Are you going to believe that in the midst of all of that, God is good and can be trusted? And that there is still security in him? Or are you going to look somewhere else? And the psalmist is trying to help us turn our focus away from all the other solutions to God as the solution. And the Israelites wrestle with this. You know, there are times where they, they, they come up against all kinds of problems and their initial reaction is not to turn to God, but to turn to Egypt or to turn to Assyria, to turn to the other nations around them thinking they've got power, they can help us. And all the while God is standing there saying, I'm right here. And that choice is continually before us as well. There's, this is not some kind of quid pro quo, you know. God, I'm going to say I follow you, so you've got to do this for me. Rather, God is saying, I'm here for you. Stuff's going to happen. Life is going to bring difficulties. Are you going to trust me? 
When you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that verse that we love to quote, God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And it is a wonderful verse to grab hold of. But you will notice as you go to the end of that chapter that Paul talks an awful lot about some terrible things that happen to the people who trust God. There is still the reality of life that comes at us. And the question is not, if I follow God, I'll be free from that. The question is, the stuff's going to come, who are you going to trust? And I'm convinced that God allows us to be vulnerable, particularly as followers of his followers. He allows us to be vulnerable because it forces us to face the question about trusting. In that vulnerable state, we have to decide, am I going to put my faith in God and really believe he's trustworthy or am I going to find something else? And the vulnerability of life forces us to make a decision. And here's the thing, the decision is for our good. Because the only way he says, he says he's going to satisfy us with, with all of life that we desire. The only way we will ever know life as God created us to know it in the fullness of his joy and his grace and his love is if we trust him. And in our human nature and the wrestling that we do with trusting God, sometimes the only way God can move us toward trusting him is to put us in situations where we have to trust him. How do you know if the wall of the fortress is going to hold or not? You know, the only way you'll know it's going to hold is if an army comes with a battering ram and it stands firm. How do you know if the wings of the eagle are going to protect you? Only when you're under those wings and a predator's trying to get at you and he can't. How do we really know that God can be trusted? Because in the moments when we're tested, in the moments when life is pushing in against us, is God real? Is God there for us? Is God who he says he is? As good and loving and powerful. And so if one of the great questions of life is can God be trusted, another great question of life is simply will we trust him? Will we trust him? Because to say we trust God really doesn't mean anything. We only, trust, we only really trust God when we trust him. So what does it mean to trust God? What, what does that look like? And the writer of the psalm talks in verse 1 and verse 9 about dwelling in, in God's presence. Dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty. Dwelling where God is. Living with him. And that word, it, it, it's not a temporary thing. It's not like a camper or a tent that you, you put in and then you take off. It is putting down roots. It's about your passion. It's, it's about the desires of our hearts and the yearnings of our lives to want to be fully, full on in God's presence. And that will involve, as the psalmist says, loving him. Acknowledging his name, calling out to him. We get to verses 14, 15, and 16. The, 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 the uh, pronouns of the psalm switch. And, and God, now it's been talking sort of about God. And here God is actually speaking. And he says, as you get to that, those verses, he says, Because he loves me, I'll rescue him, I'll protect him. He acknowledges my name and he will call upon me. And I think he's talking here about worship 
and about knowing God and about living a life of prayer with God. I mean, to love God is to worship him. It's to put God first. It's the first commandment in Deuteronomy. It's about all of life being directed and centered in God. Loving him no matter what. And acknowledging his name is really about knowing God and and, and knowing who God is. And God gives us all these ways to know him. Creation, the scriptures, the, the church, worship, the sacraments. But none of us will know God until we engage ourselves in these ways of knowing God. It doesn't mean anything until we give ourselves so it becomes a passion for us. And we pray. Our lives become a prayer to God. And prayer, when you boil it down to its essence, is is essentially acknowledging that we are weak and God is strong and we need him. That there is no solution to what we're facing and to our lives. There is no solution other than God. And we pray to God, not as sort of a 911 call, though sometimes we do that. But this life of prayer is about living in such a way that everything about our life is turning to God. Giving our life to God. Acknowledging God's greatness and our weakness and our need of Him. It's a spirit of humility before God. And people who dwell in the shelter of the Almighty, people who live in the shadow of God, are people who live a life to worship God and to know God and to pray to God at the core of our existence. And it's simply a declaration that we trust God by trusting Him. But it's hard. It's a battle. It's a struggle for us. The, I've been gone the last few Sundays, and two of the Sundays I was gone, we were on vacation. But the one before that, I was traveling to Indiana, and I spent a week teaching some intensive pastoral courses. And I appreciate the opportunity to be able to do that. And it was a, it was a wonderful week. The, the arrangements were a little bit tight for me getting back. The, my class ended Friday at 530 And then I had to have someone drive me from Frankfurt to the Indianapolis airport. My flight left there at 8.15. It connected in Chicago and was going to arrive in Buffalo at midnight. Then I I had driven up to Buffalo and left the van there and I was going to drive back to Houghton. And then we were getting up as a family and leaving at about 7, 7.30 Saturday morning to drive down to North Carolina for a week of vacation with all of my family. So... As my class is ending at 5.30 on Friday afternoon, I'm getting ready to get everything finished packing up and catch my ride. I noticed I had a phone message, and it was an 800 number. And, you know, I didn't, I don't usually answer 800 numbers. But I remembered that before I left, the airline had called me to confirm the flight. So I thought, well, they're probably doing this. So I listened to the voicemail. Unfortunately, they weren't confirming my flight. They were telling me my flight had been canceled. Like, oh, are you kidding me? So I, you know, immediately called United Airlines and, of course, they have, you know, the, the wait time was 30 minutes or more. So I get my, I'm listening, I have my hand on the phone as I'm packing all my stuff, you know, and on hold. And, and I got my things together and got in the van with the guy who was taking me to the airport and I'm still on hold and we're having the conversations. I'm on hold and we're driving to the airport. Finally, I get through and the agent says, yeah, your flight was canceled because there were weather problems in Chicago. But we scheduled you on another flight. I'm thinking, oh, great. Tomorrow afternoon at 3.30. And you'll arrive in Buffalo about 7, 8 o'clock at night. And 
I said, I can't do that. You know, we're, we're going to this family, big family vacation and down in North Carolina. I, I, I got to go. He said, well, there's nothing I can tell you. Everything's booked. So we get to the airport. I go to the ticket counter and I'm pleading with this woman. I'm trying to be nice. You know, it's not her fault. She didn't cancel the flight. Uh, you know how that is. And, and she's trying to work with me. And all of a sudden she says, okay, I can get you on a flight tomorrow morning at 515 and it'll arrive in Buffalo about 11 in the morning. I thought, well, that's better than seven or eight at night. So she was just about to book that. She got a phone call and she walked away for a couple of minutes and came back and looked at the screen and said, oh, those seats are gone. Ah, you're kidding me. So she's typing away at the computer and working at it. And finally she said, all right, U.S. Airways has a flight that leaves in about 15 minutes. If you can get over there to the ticket counter and get through security and get to the gate, you can go on that flight. And I made a connection. Now, here's the problem. You're going to go through Charlotte and your plane's going to arrive at 945 and your plane to Buffalo leaves at 1015. And you're going to land in Concourse D and you're going to leave in Concourse C. And this is a big airport. Okay. I said, well, I'm in fairly decent shape. So... I can run through the airport. She said, oh, just like O.J. Simpson. I said, yeah, right. So, so she, I run around to the counter and I got my ticket and, you know, ran, got through security. Unfortunately, it wasn't too busy. And I ran to the gate as they're loading people on. So I got on the plane and we got on the plane, we're ready to go. And we sat there. <laughs> 10 minutes, 15 minutes, we just sat at the gate. And then when we finally did leave, that is the longest taxi I have ever had in my life. I think we went on every single runway at the Indianapolis airport. I have never, that was a 10 minute taxi to take off. I couldn't believe it. And the whole time, you know, I could just feel my anxiety level rising higher and higher and higher. I don't want to get stuck in Charlotte. I mean, if someone said, well, you were going to North Carolina. Well, that's true. But two big things. One is my van was in Buffalo at the airport. And, you know, it, it, would have been, it would have been difficult to get that and get back. And I didn't want to miss driving with my family to North Carolina. That's half the fun, driving in the van, you together. So, you know, the whole flight I'm getting there, I'm getting more and more anxious. If you could sit in a seat without really sitting in a seat, I would have. You know, I was just ready to spring and it was just miserable. And I was feel I had, you know, this anxiety and worry and concern. And I'm looking at my watch every two seconds and, and you know, running into a little bit of weather problems. So the guy says, we have to circle around a little bit. And, uh, you know, and so we're getting close and we're, we land at about five till 10. And the, they get up to the place and they say, okay, we don't have a jetway coming out to you. We're going to lower some steps and you're going to walk down the tarmac to get up to the, uh, one more thing. So I'm on the edge of my seat, like row 15, I'm on the edge of my seat. And as soon as they get up there, I take off down the aisle and I just about made it. And this woman with two little children stepped out in front of me. <laughs> and you know, it's one of those moments where you're asking yourself, do I shove these little children out of the way or not? I really want to make this flight. I decided, no, I wouldn't, and, but I'm, you know, sort of just so anxious the whole time. Finally, you know, she takes, you know, it takes her a while to get down these rickety steps with these two little children, and finally she does, and I dash past her, and I race into the airport, and I see the sign for Concourse C, and I'm racing down there, and I've got this 25-pound backpack on my back, and, and I'm running, to, and I, I mean, I thought I was going to have a heart attack at first, because I ran about 15 minutes to that airport, and I got there, and they were just loading the plane, and I got on. 
Now, I got the buffalo because of the mix-up in Charlotte. My bag didn't get the buffalo, but that's okay. We worked that out. And I got to Buffalo, and I got back, and we got on our vacation and took off. And I've been thinking about that in light of this sermon. Because the whole time, I could sense God saying to me, are you going to trust me for this or not? I know this is important to you. And are, are you going to trust me that even if you don't get there on time, I'm going to work it out? And God has been so convicting me about not just that flight, but so many other things when I say I trust him, but my actions don't show that. And God is saying to me, look, are you going to trust me with the things that are happening in your life, in your family, in the church? Are you going to believe that I'm in control, that I am enough, that I know what I'm doing? And that despite what's happening all around you, I'm here for you. We come to this table this morning declaring that God is trustworthy. That God is good and God's powerful and God knows what he's doing and he is enough. And we come and we eat this bread and we drink the cup Not only declaring who God is, but also declaring our desire to dwell in his shadow. Because we're convinced, totally convinced, that our hope is in him alone and nothing else. So I want to challenge you with the challenge that God's placed on my heart. To not just say that we believe God can be trusted. But to truly live by making decisions, our attitudes, to really trust Him. Heavenly Father, we know the challenge that is in our hearts about trusting You. We worry, we're anxious. The pain and the agony of life pours over us. And we question you and we doubt you. And so often we are willing and ready to put our trust in anything else but you. Forgive us. And help us today to see who you are. And to commit ourselves anew to bigger and deeper steps and ways of trusting you. Father, as we come to this table, we pray that it will be for us a a place of trust. A place of understanding who you are and all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And in response to declare that we desire you and you alone. Father, pour out the abundance of your blessing upon the bread and the cup. Let them be for us food for our souls and inspiration for our lives. 
And we pray this through Christ. Amen.